Lord, Lord, he hoped. This heist will leave behind 13 victims. Welcome to yet another episode of Watching My Hair Dry. Before we get into today's episode, I need your help on something, because I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about it. So let me back up and actually explain the story of how I arrived at this, how I found this on the internet. So I was listening to Dark Horse by Katy Perry and Josie J. Say about my music taste as you wish. Listen to this line. So when I heard that, I remembered I covered Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, I don't remember him eating hearts. There's a full ass hour and a half episode on this. And I was like, no, I have to fact check that. Did the motherfucker eat the hearts? The motherfucker did indeed eat them hearts. Um, so I was like, okay, Juicy J, I guess I should be proud of this. But then normal people stop at that. I'm <laughs> not normal people. So I looked up and found this whole Wikipedia page on true crime references. And about 95% of them is one single band called Macabre. You might remember it if you are the OG, by all means necessary, listener. Because I mentioned Macabre with Gary Heidnick. Because they made a full song on him called Morbid Minister, something like that. Literally. The whole discography is covering serial killers. And I was like, not sure how I'm supposed to feel about this. So because it's heavy metal and it, I find it unlistenable because I listen to Katy Perry, I looked up the lyrics to those songs and they're all factually correct. They're obsessed with Dahmer, but they have covered people like Richard Ramirez, they have covered Mary Bell, Ed Kemper, Richard Speck, like all the serial killers that you can think of on top of your head. These guys made a song about it. So I looked up the lyrics and let me just read you out the Mary Bell one and a bit of Jeffrey Dahmer because I don't know, I'm so confused as to what I should be feeling about this because obviously I feel like no band should just fucking publicize serial killers like this. But then are we as true crime podcasters much different? Like, because we are giving them some publicity, even if I'm to sit here and be like, oh, I hate this motherfucker. So Mary Belmont is short, so I wanted to read it out because it's so poignant. I don't even know how to say it. Poignant, yeah? In 1968, an 11-year-old girl named Mary Bell killed four-year-old Martin Brown. Two months later, strangled Brian Ho. Mary Bell, child from hell, where are you now? Are you doing well? That's literally like the whole song. <laughs> But truly, like, we are all wondering, because Mary Bell was, what, released from prison. I, like, read last on Mary Bell when I was at uni. And even then, I think she was released from prison. So we are all wondering, where are you, child from hell? Like, what are you doing with your life? Their song on Jeffrey Dahmer is called What's That Smell, which is a bit on the nose. I mean, they have, I think, a full album dedicated to Jeffrey Dahmer, so there's plenty of them. But this is the one from this album. The song starts, Jeffrey lived in Milwaukee with 11 men, but they were in pieces because he dismembered them. I was like, well, that's one way to make a rhyme. I'm not going to give you all of the lyrics to all of the songs, but I was just like flabbergasted. Like I looked up on Spotify and every single song is on a serial killer. And I was like, okay, I guess that's one way to make the money. So how, tell me, how am I supposed to feel about this? Because I feel like I don't feel too bad about it because it is factually correct kind of like that juicy j line but then i feel like shitty about it because they are profiting on it and the whole song is just literally giving you facts on serial killers and it's metal not to give anybody any ideas but like i wonder if anybody could make something like this you know into r&b on like some trashy thing that would make it to the charts and what would people think about it then i think people would have completely different opinions if that was to happen cool now that that's out of the way and i got it out of my system hi name is maya podcast name by all means necessary welcome to it it's a mess because that's how my brain works Let's get to the expression of the day and then to the second massacre of the month. Try to tone it down. Try to be a bit less excited about it. So I kept seeing this all over the internet for like no particular reason. But the expression I'm bringing you today is chef's kiss. So that is, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm going to just like do the gesture. 
is that, right? So you put the forefinger and you put the thumb together and then you kiss it and then you separate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just wanted to bring it to people's awareness because technically we do it to mock people, to mock like a whole nation. And I was like, sorry, nobody told me this. Like, that's as if somebody was just like, no, I'm going to shoot a gun at different weddings and then just, you know, maybe shoot it at like other celebratory things just to mock Serbia. I think we would be very proud. Yeah, I think like it would be a completely different story. So I'm not sure how Italians feel about this. But the chef's kiss as an expression is there to popularize the stereotype called albacio, which means as good as a kiss. Well, that's like the translation because bacio means a kiss, but technically it means delicious. And I find it weird that we still use it today because, well, according to this article, it is that image of a chef that we have ever since post-World War II. Because this was used ever since then on pizza boxes or cans, just as advertising. Like, there is a brand, a spice, I don't know how you would call vegeta, which is like a Serbian spice. You put it in soups, you literally put it in everything. It's just salty as fuck. Don't come for me. <laughs> Serbian fucking housewives gonna come for me really quick. But even the brand of vegeta has that infamous chef that has been used as advertising for years. They just have never changed it. And from everything I read, it actually originated in the US to the point that it was even branded in 1975 by the Muppets character who introduced the character that was associated with the chef's kiss, which was named the Swedish chef. What I find funny about this is that people do not, and I don't want to start this fucking discussion, but people on the internet don't know how to like spell it out, as in they know how to spell chef's kiss, but Like, you will see the most ridiculous thing. People will do it with inverted commas. They would do it with underscore, Shevsky's underscore, with asterisk before and after the expression. And I'm just like, why? People are using it as a noun, as a verb. Like, there is no alignment of how to use it. And I just think, like, why? Why can nobody just spell it out as it is? It's not like name of a painting or like name of a book that you have to put it in these weird things. And even then, you would not put like underscores. I was like, it's not like a handle on the internet. I I don't understand. I don't think like technically it should be used because, you know, the rule should be if you need all this punctuation to even spell out chef's kiss on the internet, maybe you don't know how to use it. Maybe you shouldn't use it. There's other words to describe it. And also it kind of has like a bad origin, like where a whole other country made Italian expression about your stereotype and they converted it into advertising on pizza boxes. Like, hello? It's like somebody fucking called the marketing police here. Going back to the macabre stuff, you know what has nothing to do with that expression? The story of the day. So let me give you a bit of a background on the location where today's massacre is going to take place. So we are going to Chinatown in Seattle. And um, the way you just pronounced Seattle... It's the most Serbian thing you have ever done. Do you know in classes of English back home, they had to make sure that we are pronouncing, like, places correctly so that Chicago is not Chicago, that Edinburgh is Edinburgh, not Edinburgh. And I had an issue until I was corrected. I was pronouncing the word question differently. I don't think it had a T in it, but now I cannot... This pops into my head every now and then because I cannot actually remember how else would I have pronounced question. Like, did I think it was question? Like, I just don't understand. And I cannot remember it. And I wish somebody recorded it, you know? The world back then was different than the world now. Not everything was on the internet. Maya, get on it. On to the gruesome stuff, yeah. No more segues. We are going to Chinatown in Seattle to the Wami Club. So Wami means beautiful China, and this club was located on the ground floor space of this hotel that was built in 1909. And ever since 1920s, it was one of the few places that operated in Chinatown as both sort of a club and a bar, but also a gambling spot. And just to give you a bit of a vibe of a place, the Seattle's weekly writer, Frank Chin, wrote, quote, You don't speak with any real authority about Seattle of the 30s, 40s, or 50s if you can't say when you first stepped into the electric, smoky, whammy, end quote. But of course, it is an all-happy day, otherwise we wouldn't be here. So 
Kwame soon became a place where people went for the liquor and everything, but the focus started being more on the illegal gambling. And now when you say it was known for gambling, you're like, that's like saying like cops are speaking with known drug dealers and you know, nobody's arresting them. Kind of like that, yeah, because the cops would go there to gamble as well themselves. That meant that Wami was operating these illegal gambling schemes for decades. And of course, when something like this gets ignored, nobody actually punishes you for this, the tolerance on gambling is low. That means that by the certain period, which in this case is 1980s, Wami earned a reputation as one of Seattle's best stops for high-stakes gambling. This meant that the stakes on the table, the potential earning, was high on a daily basis, even for the time. So 1980s, the bank on the table would reach anything between fifty dollars to $100,000. And WAMI would collect 5%, but this meant a decent paycheck for anybody, like something some people might not even earn for a year. So of course, they kept it on the hush-hush, and the police had an okay relationship with them and wasn't shutting it down exactly because of that. To describe further on that, this Seattle detective, Dan Melton, said, quote, you can't get rid of gambling, you're just not going to be able to suppress it. So if you, you get real active, it's just going to move someplace else. So instead of the focus being actually, you know, suppressing the gambling, focusing on its cover, being that we are just a bar, etc., they actually invested and focused on the security of the place. And this, for me, is so cartoonish, thinking about it with, you know, the 2021 perspective. The entrance was guarded by four rows of glass bricks, and then each brick was, like, of the same color, except from one, which a guard would then kind of open, it would serve as a peephole, which then would serve for the club guard, the bouncer, whatever you want to call them, to identify the guests and decide whether or not they should go in, they're allowed in. Once the guard was to approve of them, then they would open the steel doors leading to the gaming and bar areas. Also, WAMI was open on Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays and would stay up open until 6am. So people knew, the regulars knew that those were the times to go and gamble. And also what that meant is that those bouncers, those club guards knew those people because they were regulars, like they were just you know, have a glance, be like, yep, you've been here like 10 times, I'm letting you in. And that particular weakness will mean that in 1983, three people are going to find a loophole in order to carry out one of the biggest heists Seattle will ever see. On February 19th, 1983, three men entered the WAMI club in order to carry out a heist. This heist will leave behind 13 dead. Due to one careless mistake, the only living eyewitness will help the police bring all three perpetrators to justice by all means necessary. What were their motives? to one of the most disturbing discoveries because I imagine this one so fucking visually and also it was a 62 year old man and I'm like it's you know it's the Asian man it's just the cuteness I'm like nobody nobody needs to go for this 62-year-old Wai Chin Wan was the only person that survived. It's early morning, February 19th. He hears bangs on the door. He's sort of like halfway underneath this like pool table, which meant that he wasn't shot as hard as the others. He was still shot in the jaw and the neck, but somehow he has survived. He like, is finally, you know, coming to his senses, hearing this bang on the door. So he is thinking what to do, because another thing I haven't told you about this guy is that he is hogtied, as well as 13 other people. So he's probably just trying to, like, process the scene, like, not think about, like, looking at the massacre that just happened next to him and just trying to actually get to the door himself. He also remembers when the assailants were tying them up that he has told one of them, no need to tie so tight, I'm an old man. And because of this mistake, because one of the assailants did not tie him that hard, he manages to release himself out of these knots. So 
So staggering, he manages to find his way out of the club, like the blood is pouring from his face. And he falls into the arms of the guy that was one of these Chinese patrons that was banging on the door because nobody was responding. It was at this point 12.44 a.m., so people wanted to go in and gamble and have their winnings. And this was very unusual, so they were alarmed. And Chin just drops into the arms of George Ong, one of the patrons, while at that same time a Seattle police officer was on patrol in Chinatown. And he heard on the police radio somebody called 911. And he was obviously the closest to the scene, so he went to the Maynard Alley South. And this is where he responded to the call at Wami Club. They knew that the time was essential here, so they immediately called the ambulance. And while doing that, they tried to stop blood. So they were like tying, you know, handkerchiefs around his neck to stop the blood flow in order for him to give them as much information as possible because they knew that this happened recently and that the time is of the essence for them to find these perps as soon as possible. And Chin had a heavy accent, and also because or where he was shot, he could only answer like yes or no, but he manages to utter two names, Ing and Mac. And then he sort of passed out, the ambulance carried him, and he had to go into surgery. So now these two names are all the police has to go off with. Now that the police has those names and they dispatch him, they obviously have to go in and process the crime scene. And one of them described the floor was covered in blood, and the scene looked as if somebody dumped 30 or 40 gallon barrel of blood on the floor. He said, it seems strange, but I just felt I could smell death. They also said the blood was so thick that they had to wrap their shoes in bags in order to keep them dry and, well, not to damage the whole crime scene. And they found another victim, John Louis, still to be breathing. And he joined Chin at the hospital. However, John Louis actually died on the table making Chin the only survivor out of this incident. According to the King County Medical Examiner, the victims died of gunshot wounds to the head and included John Louis, who was 48, Moomin Mar, 52, Jean Mar, 47, Henning Chin, 52, Lung Wing Chin, 60, Hung Fat Ki, 51, Chin Lilo, 51, Dewey Mar, 68, George Mar, who was in his 50s, Jack Mar, 60, Wing Wong 59, and Jim Lung Wong 54. As always, before telling you what actually happened and how they managed to track them down, let's go through the crime. So, like, once they processed it, what could they conclude? And, well, what kind of conclusions are they going to come up with in terms of how did they actually enter and how did they get away with this to this point? So on the morning of February 18th, Willie Mac, Tony Ng, and Benjamin Ng, the two Ings have no relation, like they're not cousins or brothers or anything like that. People make that very specific on the internet for some fucking reason. They're like, I don't want to be associated with this man. I think, like, I know the reason. I'll tell you later why I think they make it, because obviously the sentences and everything, and you don't want to be associated with one of, like, the infamous criminals in order for you to have a lenient sentence. I think that's why. Anyways, well, I love how I said I'd tell you later and then I told you right now. But those three woke up early and they met at six in the morning for breakfast at Denny's. And later that day, they did a car swap with Willie's cousin, who again asked no questions, and they met again at Willie Mac's house, where in the basement they gathered supplies, like nylon cords, duffel bag, and guns. Then, late at night, Tony and Willie go to Wami first, and they were granted access by doorman Jim Loon Wong, who knew them, he recognized them, he opened that steel door, as I mentioned, as normal. And it was still early in the evening, so there was only about seven or eight other people in the club at the time, including the bartender, the doorman, dealers, and patrons. And Wai Chin, the only survivor, he was a dealer at that night, and he was sitting at the bar next to Tony Ng, and he offered him a bite of his dinner. He was like, yeah, you know, like, you know, I had too much, want to finish it. And later, when he was recalling this incident after his surgery, he thought maybe that's why he slipped up. Maybe that's what saved my life, like that act of kindness that then worked in some mysterious ways that once I told this guy, you know, don't tight my knots like so hard that he actually didn't. 
So around half an hour after midnight, Benjamin Ng, carrying a brown paper bag stuffed with pre-cut nylon cords, rings the doorbell of Wami Club and he is recognized by the security guard. So he was buzzed in just like the others. I feel like this is something that would most definitely not happen today because of that bag. Like, that just screams fucking suspicious. Like, you're carrying a brown nylon bag, even like in the US where, you know, you'd still see shit like this as like grocery bags. People would be like, well, what the fuck? Like, people didn't let me in a London club once because... I was still drinking like a bottle of wine and I was about to like dispose it. I was just like looking for, well, garbage before going into the club. And he was like, no, you're just going to cause mess. And I was like, clearly didn't plan to go in with it. So yeah, I had to give up on that night. <laughs> and then the people that were with me were looking at me like, oh, why? <laughs> just like, why? It's such a British problem because in the UK, because of the bombs, I think, like I read that somewhere, like there is such a shortage of garbage bins. It's actually fucking ridiculous. In certain places, like along the Thames, in Piccadilly, like in Central, you can literally not find like a fucking garbage bin to throw something in. Like you have to have it shit in pockets. I'm not gonna smuggle this wine bottle, but also like where do I dispose of it? You tell me. I didn't see a rubbish bin for miles. That's not my fucking problem. Speak to your local council, bitch. (laughs) Back to the story. Once Benjamin is in, he kind of just looks at them and that was a signal for all three of them to turn off the lights that were closest to them. Meaning that the only light illuminating the place was the glow of the lanterns in the air. And then Benjamin shouts, hands up, and most people were at the two gaming tables, and they kind of back towards the entrance, and they put a gun to the club guard's head and said, like, no, you still keep letting people in, and the two other men were hog-tying everybody that was already inside. Tony then shuffled to the end of the club and checked the back room for any customers, like to see if anybody's in the toilet. Then once they had everybody hog-tied, they moved them to the center of the room. While they are hog-tying people and robbing them of any of their money, like emptying their pockets, four more patrons arrived and they were also bound and robbed. This is when Wai Chin convinced Tony Ng, who was tying his bonds, to loosen the rope, saying that line, no need to tie so tight, I'm an old man. And Tony would later use this to say that he was only tying people, he was only bounding them, he was just participating, but he hasn't shot anybody. Well, that and the other fact is that the other two ordered him to go to the two security doors at the entrance and to wait for them there. So once everybody's hog-tied, Willie and Benjamin place them all like towards the center of the room, and now they have their wallets, cash registers, purses emptied, and they go on to like the stairs, sort of they are lifted up above everybody else that is down on the floor, and they just start shooting. It was later said no shot has missed because there were no bullets lying around. 30 shots were fired and the police could say that they reloaded the guns and would not stop shooting until they either had to reload or they were out of bullets. And remember the doorman? He was shot in his post in the office, just like slumped over the seat. So they paid attention to like shoot him and then continue shooting everybody else. Meanwhile, Tony said that he didn't even wait at the security doors where they told him to wait, but that he fled across the alley to the other club called Hopsing Club to wait for the two of them. And he testified he only kind of remotely heard the gunshots as he was moving to that club. But after the two others finished shooting, they exited the club, locked doors behind them, and fled in that borrowed car. Remember how Willie Mac switched the car earlier that day? They fled across Lake Washington, dumping the weapons into the lake. So truly, they got rid of the weapons. They weren't covered in blood themselves because they hogtied and distanced themselves from the victims. Meaning if Chin had not survived, these three would have probably never been caught because they killed everybody on the scene, everybody that could recognize and identify them. Not just that, but imagine if somebody else survived that couldn't recognize them. Again, not encouraging you to do true crime, but don't be a dumbass and go to a place where everybody recognizes you. Like, the first fucking mistake. Because if you look at the luck, you know, there's only a certain amount of luck free people can share among themselves, right? 
It's all a pie chart in my head and, well, two of those people were recognized because their luck was shite. Moral of the story, stop committing true crime. Especially the places where people know you, like, what are you doing, dumbass? This is when we pick up with the aftermath with the police looking for them now because they have those two names and immediately they inquired and they knew that those two people were famous in those circles and, well, one of those people, Willie Mac, was really famous in the gambling circles and he was famous for owing money. So they were like, okay, cool, we have a motivation and we probably have the mastermind of this. So the police... This is wild. This is why I love this story. They go to Willie's house and they're there ransacking, asking their parents, like, where is your son? Flipping mattresses and shit, looking for the weapons. When they hear a phone ring, <laughs> guess who? Guess who decided to call his parents? This genius Willie Mac, of course, the mastermind of the plan. So the police answers the call. And they're picking up on sounds, because obviously they're trained to do this. They're like, uh-huh, yeah, really? Where are you at? Oh, we think we hear, you know, some balls in the distance, kind of like balls hitting different pins. Like, you at the bowling alley by any chance, really? You, you having a blast? Like, you doing a bit of bowling before you go to prison? So they tell him, how about you drop that and uh, you actually come home because you clearly called your parents, you want to see them. So how about you just like surrender? And uh, he does. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, at least he allowed himself to get caught. The other group of police officers is raiding Benjamin's house. And his brother Stephen told them that he actually lived with his girlfriend in the parents' home. So they go and just, like, arrest him there because he wasn't bowling. He was just there, sleeping. It was, you know, it was a tough night before. He was trying to get a decent night's sleep because apparently he had nothing on his consciousness that he shot 14 people. So it was literally like, hey, wakey, wakey. They went into the room and found fucking everything. They're like, cool. It's like fingerprints on $7,500. Fingerprints on caliber revolvers, rifle. I mean, might have as well had it written over your forehead, mate. Like, as much as people like Israel Keys scare me because Keys would literally hide like his weapons in different states and then would go commit crime and people wouldn't catch him because he had this fucking mastermind plan. The people that just have it out of the open fascinate me for a completely different reason. Like, did no planning. Did you just wake up, went for that breakfast and were like, you know what, let's rob that place. Yeah, ha have no other plan. What are we doing right after it? D didn't plan it really. Did not really have a forethought about, like, what do we do when we exit that club? Nope. So it's like, I can only plan to a certain degree. That's as if I was to record this podcast and then just leave it and be like, well, somebody should edit it, I guess. Like, And then come Monday, I just release, like, two hours of unedited footage. And you're like, but why? <laughs> this is not watchable, listenable to. Sick analogy, Maya, as always, just uh, that I'm not committing crime by doing that. Well, it's a crime for your ears, but it's not a crime that's punishable by law. Should it be punishable by law? Move on. Only other content creators and podcasters can relate to this, but genuinely, just watching unedited footage should be punishable by law. <laughs> Why would I suffer through like bloopers and bloopers in between the actual information? But then you suffer for sidelines like this. Can you move on? <laughs> Can we move on today? The police then went to match the guns with the bullets, but unluckily for them, none of these guns matched the actual weapons, so they actually disposed of the guns. But the money was there, and the money was connected to the place, so the three of them split around 20k between one another. And while this is happening, this is one of my favorite parts because, again, I can picture it so vividly. Remember the victim? Well, he has been operated on, but then he had to leave the hospital. So he had a protection. He had a protection officer assigned to him to protect him and his girlfriend. So he was technically confined. And he described this as he was living like a retiree, watching television, cooking, doing the laundry, and even playing cards with sergeant and other detectives. I just love how he converted this into, you know what, what were the odds of me surviving that club? 
Let me just become a legend and just play with these detectives while they're protecting me. They're already there. Let's play cards. This has nothing to do with the story, but it's just one of those paragraphs that you read and you're like, this is like the most wholesome thing and also like the most... something that I would definitely do. He started complaining like, hey, Lisa, I'm kind of bored. <laughs> so because of how affectionate and how great he was with the police officers, <laughs> they started referring to him as Mr. C and taking him and his girlfriend to trips. And then they there's about 10 places where they went, <laughs> like literally. There is a group of police officers that is investigating this crime and then there is like a couple of lucky ones that are going to like the zoo, the racetrack, the national park in the area, the state park, the deception pass, the track park, the winery. Like This story gives me like so much stress and so much joy at the same time because what is luck even? Like, what were the odds of this one man surviving and then just turning it into this while other police officers are at the exact same time stressing over, like, the most stressful thing that has just happened to this man who is, like, living it up? Now, you notice how I mentioned they raided two people's houses and did not mention the third person? Well, Tony Ng will prove... To be hard to find because he was actually Canadian and he managed to flee the country. Because if you remember, the only survivor named the other two people because Tony was upstairs. So the police knew that there were three people involved, but because of that, because nobody identified the third person, that gave him leeway and he managed to get out of the country. This meant that at the time, first of all, there was some animosity between the immigrants and the police. So the police had to basically speak with like these Chinese translators and to set up a tip line that was in Chinese saying that somebody should come forward, that there won't be any consequences, like if they just snitch on this person, they just want to talk. So to find Tony Ng, the police set up this Chinese language answering service simply saying, your friends were killed, help us to catch the persons responsible. And this, just like with everything in this story, has worked because this guy's face was on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. And he was kind of hiding in this rural place in Alberta, in Canada. And somebody actually saw him and managed to call the tip line. So he was arrested by Royal Canadian Mountain Police. Speaking of luck, I'm actually screaming inside because I make the podcast episode notes in the notes app on the phone and I will never do this again, no so from now on it will be done in Google Docs because apparently you can't undo if you make a mistake more than once it only allows you one undo so I have literally somehow wiped out the notes and then typed in with my fucking middle finger that you have all witnessed, like a letter W. And now I can't undo it, so I'm like scrapping for the remainder of this story online on the articles that I have already read. I'm not stressed, you are stressed. (laughs) Like, just seems like I haven't even done the research for this episode. It's okay, it's not like I'm a control freak, it's fine. Just don't make a big deal out of this, move on. So Tony was arrested by the police, but his extradition to the United States was blocked by the Canadian lawyer until the lawyer made a deal with the American authorities that they are going to drop the charges of the death penalty because Tony wasn't a shooter. This meant that the other two had to try really hard at court to avoid the death penalty. So Benjamin ended up being convicted on the 13 counts of aggravated first-degree murder after the jury only deliberated for three hours. And he didn't get a death penalty, but instead he got life in prison without the possibility of parole because his mother said that while they lived in Hong Kong, he got beaten on the head repeatedly with a piece of wood and that resulted in brain damage and that was corroborated by other medical experts. And I'm like, but that was never like an information that was public to anybody else. Like, but sure, I guess it's fine. Because as you know, I'm not for the death penalty. So I think like they should rot in prison and have hell of a time. So I'm fine with that decision. But I was just eh, a bit odd. So I was just thinking like, that's a bit odd as a defense, like to avoid a death penalty. But sure, whatever works, man. 
Willie Mac, of course, was, I, I would say, the biggest piece of shit out of all three, because he knew that people are going to try to pin it on him as a mastermind, which he was. He had the biggest motive, like, he was the one that owed money to other gambling places in town, so he was the one that actually started this heist. So he said, no, 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 he was there, he was there. But then Benjamin and him were doing the separate robbing, they were robbing people separately in this part of the club, and then Willie decided midway through the robbery that he is going to get out of there and just leave Benjamin to do this whole hog tying, you know, putting them all in a circle, shooting them. He just he that all he like heard like some snapping in the background once he already left the club. And the jury was like, uh-huh, sure. So at first he was actually sentenced to death. But then years later, his attorneys managed to find some loophole which was that the jury in 1983, in his first trial, wasn't asked to determine how much of a role he had in a crime. So then they dropped it from death penalty to life in prison. It was basically just a leeway saying that his attorneys in the first trial failed to present evidence on his background that could have saved his life. So it was the counsel's fail, which is such a common thing when people are appealing. They're like, oh yeah, the first counsel was was shit. And people get like so many verdicts overturned or like just by appealing like that. Like, oh yeah, no, the first counsel that was representing me was shit. And all these counsels, they're probably like, uh... I was just, like, doing my job. Like, you were actually a piece of shit that I was defending. Whatever gets you out of a death penalty, I guess. When it comes to Tony Ng and his trial, people had to kind of deliberate a bit more, because on one side, he escaped justice for, like, four months in Canada before he was extradited. But then, on the other side... He did claim he was an unwilling participant and kind of had things to prove it. Because during the trial, it came to light that he owed Willie Mac a thousand bucks and then this was his way to repay it. However, he tried to back out the night before. He tried to back out of it and basically say, like, I'll repay you a different way. You know, I'll go gamble myself. I'll get it by gambling and then I'll repay you. But Willie instead threatened him and his girlfriend and said, basically, you know, you either participate or you are a dead man. So once the jury kind of balanced that out, Tony got 13 life terms, one for each count of first degree robbery, meaning that he served 35 years in total because he could actually appeal. He appealed and went in front of the parole board about five times until 2014. I always thought, you know, the parole board is kind of biased once they see that nobody approved their release for like five times. Kind of like in that case of, I think it was Eric Smith, that kid that killed another child, that is literally went in front of the parole board for like 13 times and they're just every time saying no. But in Tony's case, in 2014, they actually released him and he was immediately deported to Hong Kong. This somehow rang alarm bells with the police officers and they were like, okay, we can't ignore this any longer now because, uh, you know, 13 people died, like people are aware that this is happening. So let's raid a couple of clubs. So between like 83 and 92, they were literally every year raiding these clubs, arresting people all of a sudden. And all of these clubs kind of followed what worked, which was WAMI's security system. So they were all set up similarly with like heavily guarded doors, the clubs that work after hours, different games that were played, and stakes as high as 10k and above. And as for the club itself, it actually wasn't renovated for a really long time. The doors were just shut and it was just standing there with its crusty facade with just colors fading. Until Christmas Eve 2013, when a fire started that burned half of the building. And this was also speculation, like, I don't think they ever found who started the fire. And obviously electricity wasn't working or anything. So this in itself is just like a whole who done it but this finally caused the owner of that building to demolish it and turn it into Louisa Hotel which is an apartment building with 84 units of affordable rental housing right now I'm just editing the footage and I realized because my notes were deleted that I didn't let you know what happened with the only survivor Wai Chin he actually testified against all three men at trial and he died 10 years after that at the age of 72 
But what I love is this man's outlook on life. He described facing death so nonchalantly. He would say to his friends, if you die, you die. They already tied you up. What else can you do? To which I say, what a legend, because he literally saved this whole situation. Without his testimony, none of these three perps would have been convicted at all. Back to my editing self I go. So now let's go into the little bit of the background we have of the three accomplices of the three perps. So Willie Mac was 23 at the time. His Chinese name is Quan Fai and he moved with his family from mainland China's Guangdong province in 75. He dropped out of high school, was still living with his parents and his siblings, and was just doing the odd jobs, like busboy, he was a cook, a waiter, like different hospitality jobs in Chinese restaurants. And this is how he got himself involved into dealing at gambling clubs. But of course, because he only had fucking basic math knowledge, he got himself into debts by 1983. And Willie had a dream that was completely unfounded because he dreamt of opening his own Chinese restaurant. But then he just continued gambling and piled up a debt of 30k and was also high school dropout and probably couldn't do math for shit. Benjamin Ning came from a very similar environment. He was only 20 at the time but was also high school dropout. And him and Willie met through working together in these Chinatown restaurants and gambling clubs. And Benjamin, prior to this event, already had some criminal history. He had some criminal charges, including robbery, shoplifting, and two different incidents, including handguns. I think this was kind of brushed off from what I read from court, because Benjamin had, like, deep gun history. He actually shot at a car once and injured a teenager, wounding his neck, chest and thigh. So he probably shot at his car and he was let out because he claimed that this was in self-defense. And Tony Ng was 25 at the time and he lived with his parents in South Seattle. He also moved from Hong Kong in the 70s and he graduated high school, enrolled in vocational program and he just worked part-time at his dad's restaurant and at a car dealership so the three of them met for work but Tony had the best life out of them all. He had like, he finished high school, you know, he was doing all these jobs, he lived with his girlfriend And he said he only agreed to the plan thinking that would clear him of the thousand dollar debt and he had no idea that these two planned to actually murder everybody in the club. So when they met, obviously Willie found a perfect accomplice because Benjamin wasn't afraid of some gunfire. And this is what is so callous about this because from the day that they started planning this, both of those people knew that there are gonna be no witnesses. So the way they started planning, they knew that they have to have a third person. They knew that they have to have Tony as this lookout. And, well, they found the perfect person in a guy that owed Willie Mac some money. So the day before the robbery, as I told you, Tony actually borrowed $1,000 to repay Mac. But instead, Mac drew a gun and shot a bullet at his feet and threatened to kill him and his girlfriend. To destroy his own family restaurant and to go to the police. So you could argue that this was really the point of no return, although I would actually argue that it came a lot earlier, because they have actually planned this for quite a while, which is so fucking retarded, because this was like one of the dumbest plans that I have ever researched. So their plan was to hit a high-stakes club on the evening of the Chinese New Year, hence why February. This is because patrons would be drunk, like nobody would be on high alert, and they would also flush with cash. Everybody's in celebratory mood. It's kind of like Christmas, and they also falsely accounted that investigation is going to be low, because, like, first of all, well, they plan to kill every single witness, but also because the casino and this club, like, had cops on the payroll. Basically, they're not going to want to turn heads to this crime because that will implicate them and this whole illegal gambling situation that they had going on. So Willie, in his dumbass head, this is why you go to high school, this is why you look up, this is why you watch some true crime at least, he thought people are just going to move on. This will leave the club unscathed. Everything is going to go back to normal. Mm Mm-hmm. Like what, they're just gonna go back next day to the pool of blood that you have left behind from like 14 people and just continue gambling as normal. That, that's what this guy thought. 
so he thought like I mean definitely would be closed temporarily for them to like clean it up but then they're just gonna reopen and everything is gonna be normal they're gonna forget that the crime ever happened nobody's gonna look for them good job Willie how, how did that work out for you sir he thought his choosing a Wami club is great because of the high stake. Because this was one of the famous clubs. Like, that's not how crime works. You don't go for, like, the biggest fish straight up, like your first crime ever. Who told you that, really? So for me, really, the point of no return here is when the first two collided, Willie and Benjamin, and when they decided that nobody should live for some reason, because this could have easily been a robbery. Which brings me to the motives for this case, because as we discussed last week, usually for mass shootings, motive is some form of revenge. In this case... Yes, there's definitely a monetary motive, there's definitely that monetary gain, he could have cleared out all of his debts, although I have a feeling somebody would get suspicious because he had 30k in debt if he suddenly came and, you know, just cashed out like 30k, which again, this heist, if you remember, only yielded 20k, which they had to split between the three of them. So around 7,000 each, nothing, like you, pointless pointless like you couldn't even pay the debt which was technically the main motive for this but truly here why kill people why kill a single person if you're just not cruel and you want to eliminate witnesses because nothing is telling me there was some deep thinking here they were just callous and fucking evil so I think this had more to do with the second motive that we spoke about last week when it comes to things like mass shootings or massacres, which is control. Because these people had no control over anything in their life by their own fault, you could say. Yep, they decided to drop out of school, they decided not to bother with anything, and then have these random jobs and get themselves into gambling. But this, for them, would have probably regained them some control again, because at least they would have enough money to like move on maybe open a Chinese restaurant maybe get out of these gambling debts whichever one of those it is so I think that was more it but in this way it also reminds me of a case of Sacramento hostage crisis if you remember is the one with the catchiest name it's one of the episodes with the most listens because its title was they never stop at just one s I'd recommend listening to it it's not just clickbait I mentioned something to do with that. But it reminds me of that crime case because in that one, the perps were also children of immigrants. And when it comes to immigrants, there is that thing of proving yourself. This case really made me think of that because, again, it's just that piled up frustration about you're nobody, you're like high school dropout, you are somebody who has all these dreams and aspirations that are like children of immigrants, but you are going about it the wrong way because this is going to land you in prison instead of yielding success and also you carelessly decided to like kill people instead of maybe just rob maybe not do any of it maybe go about it the honest way and you could have had that life that you wanted to prove yourself to your parents for You'll have to let me know what you think about this one on the socials. I definitely agree that as most massacres or mass shootings, there is some sense of regaining control that you don't have in your own life here as well. But because they were also foreigners and just like how the police went about it and where they lived and what they decided to rob, I have a feeling this is a bit more than that. It was a bit about proving themselves as well. And they just went about it the completely wrong way. I am at deadbampod on all of the socials or podbam at gmail.com if you want a more personal email-to-email -email conversation. I might read it out in the next episode, you know, be like, hey, Maya, I hated this. I'd be like, okay, maybe I won't read that out. <laughs> maybe I'll just respond, be like, tell me why. Ain't nothing but a heartache. <laughs> Does anybody remember? I never even watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> But there is that one scene when people are in a lineup. <laughs> Need to play it. Fuck, fuck going into your next Zoom call. This is what you bring to your next Zoom call. I never even watched this show. <laughs> Literally, the first thing that comes out is Brooklyn Nine Nine Backstreet Boys. Even if your team isn't in the same place, your work can be. Is it Monday.com? No, it's a sign up. So, 
Do you recognize any of these men? I was hiding in the bathroom stall, so I didn't see his face, but I heard him. He was singing along to the music at the bar. Do you remember what he was saying? I want it that way. Backstreet Boys, I'm familiar. Okay. Number one, could you please sing the opening to I Want It That Way? Really? Okay. You are my fire. Number two, keep it going. The one desire. Number three, believe when I say. Number four, I want it that way. Tell me why. Ain't nothing but a heartache. Tell me why. Ain't nothing but a mistake. Now number five. I never want to hear you say. I want it that way. Oh, chills. Literal chills. It was number five. Number five killed my brother. Oh, my God. I forgot about that part. And on that note, <laughs> I could not have possibly to wished for a more inappropriate way to exit the true crime podcast. <laughs> That's it for me this week. I'll see you guys. Well, I'll see you actually on Friday because now minisodes come every week. Go, go listen to them. Binge on those motherfuckers because this Friday's one is actually pretty interesting if I may add so <laughs> myself. Although I would say that for every single case that I cover. But yeah. Join me then, and then on Monday for the big one, for the big reveal, for the last massacre of the month. Say it with a serious voice. Say it like you aren't happy about it. It's like the worst case of a lifetime. Children have died. Yeah, and the most children again, if I don't change it last minute. <sighs> cool, yeah, you keep guessing at what that one is, and until then... By, that, by doing that and singing and making mockery out of lineups, keep making the world a better place. One motive at a time. <laughs> Bye, fuckers. Okay, on a different note. <laughs> Wouldn't tell me why be like a great intro to a podcast that was called Motive and is about motives and is um, by all means necessary now. Just if I had like that jingle, tell me why, and then I start talking instead of this one. But now you're stuck with this one, so enjoy the outro. <laughs> Nothing bad happening. Tell me why. Ain't nothing bad a mistake.